Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, we've got a hell of a lot to talk about tonight. <laughs> yes, we do. We had we have the fifth episode of From His Home to Yours that uh, that Bruce does on E Street Radio, and we have the archival release, and then we have our main topic. So this is going to be uh, got a lot to talk about, as you said. And our main topic is Devils and Dust at fifteen, but we're going to get to that a little later. First, we're going to start with episode five of Bruce's series on E Street Radio, From His Home to Yours. And we've talked about the first four episodes. We enjoyed them, but he went to a whole new level here. Incredibly powerful stuff from Bruce. And of course, as he said, the country is on fire. And he really, I think, spoke to what's going on, the human condition. And it really, what he said moved me. And he started with his own track, American Skin, and what could be more relevant at this time. Bruce came out, he had something to say. I mean, it's almost like one of his concerts. He came out, he had something to say, and he got right to it. On previous episodes, he kind of had a fun song to open the show. I think one of them was Roy Acuff's On the Radio, and it sounded something straight out of the 50s that you would you would hear on in North Carolina or something. And But this time, right after, right out of Jim Rotolo's intro, it was the, the opening chords of American Skin. And he didn't, as, as Karen Rose said on Twitter, he, he wasn't playing around here. When the song ended, he started speaking, and what he said, eight minutes, that song is almost eight minutes long, and that's how long it took for George Floyd to die with a Minneapolis officer's knee buried into his neck. That's a long time. That's how long he begged for help, and he said he couldn't breathe. And, you know, one of the things, and we talked about American Skin a couple episodes ago in the context of the controversy prior to the Garden Stand in 2000, and we, we talked there about how the song really wasn't anti-cop. And, and we talked about the, the lines that are sung from the perspective of the officers. And that when they shot the aloe, at, at least in Bruce's depiction, they laid over his body in the vestibule praying for his life. Well, if you want to say that that's an accurate depiction, and I, I think it was, that here there's no such empathy and... Bruce is coming at it, even though it's the same song, I think from a vastly different perspective. Right. As, as you said, in, in 2000, the, the, the were cops were most likely praying for his life. Whereas this, whereas 20 years later, he's not. And no, it's, and it, it was, it's it, just very, it was very sad to say, very, very disturbing to say the least. And if Bruce re- was writing the song now, he wouldn't present it like that. Probably not. And, uh, you know, if we look at the lyrics of the song, and, and it's such a powerful song, and, and the second verse where the character Lena tells her son, Charles, the rules of the street in case he gets stopped by a cop, and how relevant does that seem today? And, and as I said in our Garden episode, I have members of my family who have been NYPD. I have tremendous respect for cops, but, you know, I think any reasonable person can say, this cannot go on. I mean, what went on in Minneapolis is is just it's society can't go on like this and, and something has to change. And I think that's what Bruce was trying to get to in uh, what he was presenting here and the latest episode from his home to yours. Right. I think at this point, we're not the protesters aren't out there specifically protesting or, or voicing their concerns about this specific case. They're out there talking about the systemic racism that that we have in, in our society and specifically 
and uh, and what appears to be it in the, among police officers across the country. And obviously, Bruce feels very passionately about it, as as many many people do. I think hopefully, I'll, the vast majority of the country. And you know what he said at, when he was done speaking after American Skin, and then Murder Incorporated started. I thought that was was perfect. What he said, or the song choice. Both. both. <laughs> yeah. Well, he he said that was where he said the country is on fire. He the last thing he said is, and as I record this show, uh, I, I, to be exact, he said, and as of this broadcast, the country was on fire and in chaos, and Murder Incorporated started. I remember that song being described to me, or this, I remember reading it described back in the day, Murder Incorporated, as being about there's murder, just murder is everywhere and it's on the street and it's basically been turned into a business. And that certainly is very, a very apt description here. Interestingly, it was at the Chicago show. I saw, I know it was at some other shows on the 2016 tour. He did pair American skin into murder Inc. brilliantly in 2016. Yeah. Uh, actually I heard one of those shows on Street radio. I think it was a June 1st one. And I'm like, wow, yeah, those two songs together, they they really fit. And that was right after the the Floyd video surfaced. So Bruce was on to something right from the, you know, four years ago before any of this happened. Now, we're not going to go through the show song by song because we're going to get to our main topic. But beyond the political connotations of what he was saying, there was actually, from a Springsteen fan perspective, (laughs) something very, very big that took place in the broadcast as well. And that was he world premiered his outtake from the vaults, which we actually had, we had called on him to do. I'm sure we had nothing to do with it, but uh, Idiot's Delight, the the song he did with Joe Groshecki, here presented totally done by Bruce and what appears to sound like the E Street Band. The arrangement was certainly not much different than than Groshecki's original studio version, but it certainly was bluesed up a lot more and it had a heavier sound. And really the closest thing I can, I would compare it to is the Magic Tour version of uh, reason to believe. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that it, it sounds to me, do you, March 2001, maybe the sessions, ironically, where the first attempt at American Skin in the studio was made? I would say yes. He, he rec- supposedly also recorded another thin line and encoded silence during those sessions. So it wouldn't be much of a stretch to, to do this one, to do it. I mean, Idiot's Delight, to do I'm Not Sleeping. And I think there was at least one other one other song that they co-wrote together, which easily could have been recorded there at that time. Now, I know, obviously, we've been talking about some heavy stuff at the top of the show. Of course, we are still a Springsteen podcast where we talk about what's going on in the world of Bruce. And I think the audience is going to want us to ask and answer the following question. <laughs> is Idiot's Delight a potential clue as to the existence of tracks, too? Well, that's the that's the sixty four thousand dollar question, and I don't know the answer offhand. We we definitely can hope, and it definitely adds fuel to the fire, but we don't know for sure. I mean, you go back to when Grush- when Grushecki was on, he didn't a uh, guest DJ back in I guess two th- early two thousand fourteen or late two thousand thirteen, and he played that version of Homestead that that Bruce recorded himself. So, and that went absolutely nowhere in terms of being released. I didn't feel that that version was as finished as the Idiot's Delight sounds. Did, do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. This one I mean, does it, sound... It really did sound like Idiot's Delight is a finished track. It does. It certainly does. And, you know, we can hope. 
and we can we can keep our fingers crossed as we've been doing so for the last you know few months years whatever and i hope this is the year and just the last thing on from his home to yours i i do want to highlight the last few tracks the patty smith people have the power then bob dylan's 17 minute opus murder most foul <laughs> And then he did, he had America, My Country, Tis of Thee in there and, and appropriately ending with Graham Parsons in my hour of darkness because this is a very dark hour. And hopefully, as as Bruce would put it, we're just around the corner to the light of day. Well, if you're going to mention the the song America, My Country, Tis of Thee that he played, you got to point out that it was done by the United States Army Field Band Soldiers Chorus. So... Um, if people who are people who might say, "Oh, he's anti-American or anti-America," well, he's playing a song from our own armed forces, so I think that's a little bit of an endorsement right there. Look, anyone who would say that Bruce—it was bad enough when he was accused of being anti-cop, and I think we talked about that in, in a lot of detail, and we don't need to go back into it again. It just wasn't true, and the idea that he would be anti-America is just so ludicrous; I, it doesn't even dignify a response. <laughs> no, it certainly does not deserve any kind of response. I mean, Bruce Bruce loves his country and wants it to be the best it can, the best it can be. So that's what that's where he's coming from. Totally agree with you there. And with that, let's turn our attention to the archive release, June twenty fifth, two thousand and five, from the Devils and Dust tour, tying in nicely to our main theme tonight. I would ask what you think of it, but I think our audience <laughs> already knows. Yeah, I think this I think this is a great pick. It's been uh, we've had what five or six E Street releases in a row so we were due for for something off e street and this was a great selection from the from the devils and dust tour um we've we got we've already had three releases we had the two from early august in grand rapids and columbus as well as the final night in trenton and uh but this one captures a great night in europe as we know he was uh, really pulling pulling things out left and right at this part of the tour and this is a great example of it we got four tour debuts and plus a bunch of other rarities. So uh, big thumbs up for me. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed listening to it too. And I like how it has quite a number of songs. What is it, nine, 10 that weren't on the other Devils and Dust releases? Um, if I did a count, I don't remember what it is. I'm sorry. I, I know it's one of those two. Okay. So, but uh, you got Lucky Town in there, the acoustic version, which of course I like, and the Walk Like a Man, which is the combo version on the electric piano. And then he switches to the grand piano. Yeah. I think that's a fabulous arrangement of a song that, as we've talked about before, he just sort of forgotten, but he brought it back on this night. And the downbound train to open the show on the pump organ he sounds so weary on that track mm. and it's so mournful. It, it really, and you know, that's one of my favorites from Born in the USA. So I, I always like when he pulls it out, but just very unexpected in the way he did it there. Yes, it's, I thought it sounded like uh, like what I would hear in a church on, on Sunday mornings. Uh, of course, when I went to church, that is. And so I really got a, it felt like a real hymn to me. But, uh, but also talking about songs off Born in the USA, I got to admit, I'm not a fan of my hometown normally, but even on this tour, I know it was it was a little bit more uh, a little more intimate on piano than it is on with the E Street Band. But segueing "Walk Like a Man" into my hometown really worked. It really, I mean, that's like that's his whole his whole childhood and in local neighborhood right then and there. I agree with you. A very effective version of My Hometown. And another song of Born in the USA from this show that I really like, the acoustic version of Bobby Jean. And I've always felt this. 
is just really effective. It's got sort of like a Dylan-esque flavor to it. I, I think I'm hearing like a little shelter from the storm in there. I don't know exactly, but I really like it. Okay, well, I can't help you with uh, any Dylan connections. I'm not as familiar with his catalog as I am, you know, Mr. Springsteen's, but I will follow up by saying the the sweetest drinking song that he that he kind of introduced after Bobby Jean where the where the crowd started singing along was just that was just a fun moment and it's one of those that really does come through on on a recording and and of course Bruce segued perfectly into Blind About a Light. Yeah, that was fun. And the crowd is mixed very well here by Al Schiller. It's got a lot of life. And, you know, I like that. So yes, I do. Yes, I do. The other thing about this show, I think it is worth noting uh, some of the standards from the tour. Devils and Dust, which, of course, was played every night. Sounds really good here. Empty Sky, which wasn't an every nighter, but was played very often. Very fiery version of Empty Sky. Yes, that was it rocks more on this tour than than it did than it did on the rising tour, obviously. Yeah, it totally does. And I think one other song just to mention that wasn't played very often on the Devils and Dust tour, a beautiful version of Across the Border here. Oh yes, it was. Just 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 beautiful. Anyway, I'm sure it's not gonna surprise anyone that we think this is a worthy <laughs> addition to the archive series, and I really enjoyed listening to it today. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to listening to it a bunch of more times in the next few weeks. So let's let's talk about Devils and Dust. 15 years ago, it came out. Once again, I mean, we're always like, how the hell did the time pass that quickly? <laughs> but uh, really, 15 years since Devils and Dust came out, it's it, it just it's going way too fast, Flynn. I wish I knew where the years went. They keep going, but here we are. Um, my own little personal theory about Devils and Dust is that Bruce spent the, the months after the end of the Rising Tour going through some of his old tapes going through some some going through his vaults basically looking for tracks to stuff and he came across this batch of material that he said wow this is this is an album right here i just need to you know add a couple other songs and re-record some parts here and boom you had devils and dust uh, it's interesting that you say that because i know devils and dust probably dates in terms of when he wrote it to mid 2003 and we know the song. Yes, the song, okay. not not the record, the song. Okay. The the other songs, as I think you're you're laying out, all date from earlier. Yes, uh, a lot of them were recorded or written in like in 90, 95, 96, 97. Uh, he actually re- and he recorded. He talked about recording a, a, an acoustic album as a follow up to Jode. That was in the in the Brian Hyatt book, and but then decided not to release them. So they had probably gotten pretty far along in the process of of having them maybe not totally mixed, but certainly recorded and, and looking at it for possible for potential release. Right. I, we knew at the time in the late nineties before tracks came out, there was a lot of talk. It was, I, I think it was public that he had another acoustic record, which people did refer to as Joe two. Yes. And I mean, specifically uh, that was uh, late 97. Right. And of course they ultimately decided that was not the right move to put out a second consecutive acoustic album. And I, I think they were 100% correct there. <laughs> yes. I think of a, a second acoustic album from one of the greatest rock album, rock acts of all time would kind of stall some things. And fortunately Bruce, Bruce came to that conclusion as well. Right. So that led to tracks. And then of course that led to the band reuniting. And then after two band tours, he actually had sort of the, exact opposite feeling which was i've done two band tours in a row let me put out something a little bit different and that was when as you were saying he discovered the songs from the late 90s and he decided to start working on them again 
Right. He and they so he added in the new song. Actually, the only the only relatively new song was was the title track, which he had written sometime in early 2003. Um, it was I mean specifically it was it's about the Iraqi war. <laughs> yes. And uh, but obviously it can be extrapolated to be about a lot of other things. What did you feel about this album overall? I, I got to tell you, in all honesty, and on this show, I think so far we've covered what Western Stars and Tunnel of Love and especially in the rising and in all three cases i talked about how cohesive the records are and i gotta say this record to me i feel is a little uneven yeah it starts off pretty strong but it just doesn't have the consistency uh to go all to of a great album all the way through how much of a narrative do you think there is throughout the entirety of the songs say like we discussed with western stars I don't know that that exists here to the same extent. No, I was just thinking about that uh, today as well. Uh, certain, when I was look, looking at it when comparing to Joe, where there really was a theme, you know, certainly you had the border suite in the song, and you had the title track, you had Youngstown about you know, the, about the underclass, basically. And in this one, he, it's, it's, really, it's really all over the place. I mean, you go from a soldier in Iraq, you go to a guy at a bar, you go to a a kid whose whose mother passed away. You go to Jesus Christ Himself. Yeah. So it, it just it just really is all over the place. You're right. I mean, there there are a lot of different topics being covered here, and in a way, it, it is an outtakes record. Even though it was presented as a record of new material, and he toured behind it, this was. I don't think it it had its genesis necessarily as a cohesive project. Well, I guess. Well, it would be interesting to hear what the what the original 97 album sounded like. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that it was everything everything here except for Devils and Dust. Maybe maybe it was. Um in which case Devils and Dust really just the song provided a nice little well, nice little title track and a nice way to to keep everything current. Well, one of the things that Hyatt talks about in his book, of course, is that quite a bit of instrumentation was added once Brendan O'Brien came in to work on these tracks. He was not involved in 97. He had not yet come into the picture. Right. That kind of goes back to my theory before where Bruce is looking at stuff for a possible tracks, too. And he came across these songs, which were enough of of an album in, in his mind at the time to say, hey, let's let's polish these things up. So. He he called up Brendan O'Brien and said, "Hey, let's uh, let's let's do something." And, and yeah, and they added a lot. So it would it would really be interesting to see what the or hear rather what the uh, original version sounded like. Now, I just want to ask a question because I, I you've said something that I'm really I don't think I was aware of that he was looking for material even as early as 2003 2004 for tracks two. It, it was he actually considering? releasing another box of outtakes that soon after it would have only been five years after the first box i i don't know as i said that's my theory um the only thing i have only other piece that i really have to support my theory is that the seeker sessions basically originated around the same time too right um because that's they're true. actually i mean in in march of 2005 when bruce was i mean they had probably were just finishing up or had had finally put Devils and Dust to bed and we're planning a tour, he goes He goes back and does the, the Seeger Sessions recording session two. So he basically had, he found these two ba- two batches of material and he, he felt that each one could be the, an independent album. Now that is actually, I think, a very interesting point because, so two albums result from 
looking back at material he had not finished. And right. what we know, potentially, this is a little off topic, but we love discussing it. <laughs> should there be a tracks two this year? From what we've heard, a, a good part of it may be complete albums that haven't been released yet, which is along the same lines, just that this time they won't be presented as new material. In my thinking, I've always kind of considered Devils and Dust and Secret Session, the Secret Sessions, the first two disc of, of tracks two. Yeah. And that could. And then, make, of course, then we got high hopes. Well, you got high hopes and then you have the promise. So, yeah, those are five discs worth basically worth of outtakes that he released between between 98 and today that, you know, they could have been into their own box set or they could have been individual albums. OK, so that covers the history of the record. Should we begin with the tracks? Let's go ahead. So Devils and Dust, it's hard to say that it's the best song on the record because I also love Long Time Coming. And I, Reno is a personal favorite that nobody should read anything into that. I just want to say that. <laughs> well, we'll talk about Reno when we yeah. get there. But Devils and Dust is such a powerful song. And I've always been fascinated because we know it, it appeared he was going to open with it on the Vote for Change tour. And then at the very last minute, I think it was even on the set list, the first night of the Vote for Change tour, right? I think so, or at least it was, there was some picture with it on the teleprompter. It was something along those lines. Yeah, so, and then he decided to open with the acoustic Star Spangled Banner into Born in the USA, and, and Devils and Dust was, was never played at that time. But it, to me, it is, it is a very significant song, and it sets the tone not only for the record, I think for a lot of the things that we're discussing and, and it makes the song very relevant today because the opening line of the song is got my finger on the trigger and I don't know who to trust. Right. That's to me, that's a very powerful, very powerful image because it, it brings up soldiers from American soldiers from so many wars from Korea and Vietnam and, and then, and then Iraq and, you know, and then, then you, you take it to back to what we were talking about earlier about on, on the streets of, of, of American cities. Is this person reaching for a gun? Is it reaching for a knife? Or is it a wallet? I don't know who to trust. Oh, yeah. And just the way the character is describing in the lyrics, he feels he's got God on his side and he's trying to survive. But what he's saying is he may have to do stuff to survive that kills the things you love and kills what's inside you. And, and obviously Bruce is evoking what was going on. I think for a lot of these soldiers in Iraq and in the middle East at the time, but it, 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 it is a very powerful thing to think about, you know, that if what you have to do to survive is actually going to kill you, if not physically, emotionally. Right. That, that image of to deal with the fear, you have to basically kill your, kill your own humanity just just to make it to the next day and that's yeah. always that's always been a very stark image for me and again this is something that has come up in his work it, in a way it reminds me a little bit even though topically it's totally different but it, you know western stars waking up the next day with your boots on well if we want to talk about songs that could appear on western stars uh, i think reno is is the best one but devils and dust yeah you're right he's just talking about he has to survive and I mean, it's a little bit different than than Western stars, but at least to me, I I hear it oh, more. I, I agree that there's a difference, but I do think that that theme of people trudging through the day and and dealing with adversity and how do they get to the next day? To me, that's where the similarity comes in. Okay, well, I wouldn't use the word trudging. I mean, that's you're right. That's the word that we used, or that could be used for the guys on Western stars. But on Devils and Dust, this guy is just. He's using whatever skill he can 
to make it to the next day. And that's yeah. survival and not just existence. Oh, well, I, that's a very good point. I, I like the way you put that. Oh, thank you. Now, let's also talk about the song musically, because I do think oh, this yeah. is imp important here. And it, what sets it apart from Joad immediately is that this record begins with this song and it's it's got a building sort of ominous tone to it. I would say somewhat of a country flavor. And I do think that that's a factor on many of the tracks on this record. What what do you what would you say? Well, I love the drums on this song. I think it's something different, something I've never heard from Bruce before. And I think it really sets the sets the stage musically, sets the mood musically for the for the last half of the song. Now, what I found interesting I, in Brian Hyatt's book, again, mm -hmm. we love that book. <laughs> yes, is that he talked about he had a rock version, a rock arrangement of that song, but which I think you alluded to earlier. Yeah, well, we, I assume that's what would have been played on the Vote for Change tour. Oh, I don't make that assumption at all. Oh, I you think, think the, it was similar I think, to... I think the Vote for Change version would have been the solo acoustic. Because it was rehearsed with the band, correct? It was. I mean, it was pretty cool hearing it, too. I, I, was, oh, I, went to those, those, I went to the Asbury rehearsals and wrote down some of the lyrics that, that I could hear. Okay, yeah. so... Well, well, what makes you think it was it was going to be him solo? If uh, because I always assume we know it had been it had been rehearsed on the Rising Tour once or twice as well, correct? Uh, yes, I mean I think it made its debut or its soundcheck debut in like Vancouver or Montreal in two, in April of two thousand three. Okay, so but you think it would have been the solo because I always had in my mind that it was going to be he was going to be back by the band. Well, maybe it would have been something more akin to what he played in Kansas City in 2008, where it was kind of, you know, some, something similar to how he did the Ghost of Tom Joad on the reunion tour. Okay. I wasn't expecting a rock version or rock arrangement of that song, because he did not rehearse a rock arrangement when I heard it in Asbury. That okay, was, so it was, it, was closer to, it was closer to a full band version of, of what he ultimately released on the record. What in Asbury? Yeah, no, it was it was more like the the version of, of Ghost of Tom Joe that he did on the on the reunion tour. Oh, okay. That that kind of what we would call a combo arrangement. Right. Okay. Just, so like some light drumming, uh, some steel guitar from Nils, that kind of thing. And so obviously nothing like what uh, ultimately is played in 2012 when he does Devils and Dust with the full band twice. Right. It was nothing like that. <laughs> okay. I just, you know, we like to be specific. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. But, you know, but in Brian Hyatt's book, he talked about how he had just done, uh, I mean, he had a rock arrangement of the song, but he had just done a lot of the band stuff. As you said, he had been on tour with them for, you know, for previous five years, more or less. So he wanted to do, specifically said he wanted to do something different. And so that's how we got to this kind of understated arrangement of, of the song. Okay, and I just want to give Steve Jordan his props because you you mentioned the drumming, and we didn't say it was Steve Jordan. Steve Jordan is the drummer on this track, right? And I think Steve Jordan he he was the drummer on most of this album. Yeah, uh, but in in most of those drums, those drum parts were actually recorded in two thousand four. Right. So someone else had drummed in the versions in the nineties. Right. Very likely Gary Malabar. Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. So let's let's move on to all the way home. Now, and all the way home, so you don't think it's because, it, it, interestingly, the, the song does slide right into the next track, which does not happen in every case on this record. No, I what I thought, I always found it very fascinating that he actually did it this way. 
because uh, he it's not something he had done before. It's not something he's really done since. But it, and it's really interesting. I was listening to this album recently, obviously, and I noticed that the song Devils and Dust kind of faded out of my left channel or of the left channel with All the Way Home kind of coming up out of the right channel. And that was I hadn't realized that before. I just thought it was a, a seamless, regular, you know, full stereo segue. But no, it was Devils and Dust fades away in the left and Devil and All the Way Home comes up on the right. See, I, and maybe I'm overanalyzing it because to me, the way it faded in, the first line of the song is, I know what it's like to have failed baby with the whole world looking on. So I did think to myself, is this a soldier who's come home from Iraq, who's battered, you know, mentally, and now he's in this bar and he just needs a little bit of human connection and he's trying to talk this lady into going home with him? <laughs> well, see, that's that's the beautiful thing beautiful thing about 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 art is that you can interpret interpret it in different ways based on what you see around it or or what you're feeling in real life because obviously you know that he originally wrote this song in 1990 we talk about this all the time and we know he puts these songs into a different context just by putting them in sequence with some song or another and uh, here too he made a very conscious choice obviously with the music because the version of all the way home we know from 1990 and which he himself played on the 1992 tour is literally nothing like this version and musically right musically it is not even in the same ballpark but yeah it's i mean he could have been he could have been trying to say to say that this is a, a soldier who comes home somewhat wounded or or damaged in in, in some fashion we look for sort of the secret meaning of Bruce's lyrics. And <laughs> if we want to take it just on the face of it, then it's really a, a song that is, it's a pickup song. <laughs> yes, it is. And it's not even, it's, yes, it's like, you know, Hey, maybe your first choice went home, but you can go home with me. <laughs> now, what did you, what did you think of the change in the music from the version we knew from when Southside released it on better days? Oh, I actually love this version. I'm one of the few people who, I feel like I'm one of the few people who actually prefer this one over the Southside version. I like the way it's it rocks. I guess Outlaw Country was the way it was described by by Brian Hyde in his book, and I you know really moved me. I thought it was great, and I certainly thought a, an E Street version would have been a, a lock on the next tour, but not to be. Now, what we can say, I think for sure, is had he released the original conception of Joe Two. All the way home would have never been on it in this type of musical arrangement. It probably wouldn't have been on it at all. No. Well, again, going back to Brian's book, um, all the way home and long time coming were actually part of the daytime sessions during during the Joe recording period. Oh, I didn't see that. Is that true? It's in this book. Yeah, Marty Rifkin gave him a lot of information about. That. Oh, okay. I got to read that again closer. Yeah. Well, I just did. Uh, you know, just preparing for this episode, I I dived in into that book today so okay so in the daytime sessions the as we referred to them last episode as the country western swing sessions you're saying they they took a run at all the way home and long time coming yes, yes. okay and that, that, that and this and this was the arrangement that they that they used in um in 95 and this they just polished it up a little bit in the studio in 2004 you know i didn't know that and it seems maybe with that piece of information perhaps it could have been on joe too what was surprising to me was that All the Way Home has always sounded like an acoustic or a country take on the on the rock arrangements from the 92 albums, while well, specifically Human Touch, uh, like Gloria's Eyes or Leave and Train. That's what I hear when I hear all 
all the way home on Devils and Dust, or at least that's what I'm reminded of. So I'm just wondering if there if there's a, a version in that like a rock, an actual rock arrangement from nine from ninety or, or ninety one that Bruce did in the studio. Okay, but, that but I, but there's no well, evidence of that. I mean, Brian certainly did not mention that in the book anywhere. And that's obviously later than we have in the studio logs from Halen. Yes, yeah, the Halen Halen logs stop, stop around eighty four. Oh yeah, that's right. And I guess then we'll move on to the next track, which is Reno and. I got to say, this is one of the more interesting tracks in certain ways in in the catalog. It's certainly the most frank. Yes, it is. It's very blunt. I think you had mentioned to me before that it's actually one of your favorite songs. Well, I wouldn't. At least off this album. Oh, yes. It is is one of my favorites off this album. I wouldn't call it. uh, It's not born to run. Well, no, it's. No, it's not. But but I can totally understand that because I I feel like this song is one of the most cinematic songs he he's ever written. Actually, I can I can see the movie. Yeah, when he's it, during the song. It's not only cinematic. I think it's the, also the way that it's layered and the way he puts the story together of the lost love. The guy has been in love with this woman named Maria. She's now gone. He's desperately trying to recapture that in this hookup or what would we call it a transaction <laughs> yeah it's a business transaction and it's obviously not working out for him very well as it turns out in the end but i i just think it's in many ways i mean it's funny to say this and perhaps some people will take issue with this but i find it to be a very beautiful song for that reason because it really is about that lost love i mean obviously the lines themselves they're very very bold And in fact, if you believe the story, and I think Bruce even alluded to this on stage a couple of times, they were going to do a promo deal with Starbucks for this record. And in part, it felt it fell through because of the lines in the song, two hundred dollars straight in two fifty up the ass. Bruce obviously didn't want to compromise and understandably so. We know he's not going to compromise his art, but it's interesting that he chose that language here in this sort of song, which is otherwise very sentimental. Well, the reason he he uses that language, and I'm sure, you know, it's that's pretty common in that industry, is that he he painted the rest of the song as as you said as a beautiful relationship song that that obviously didn't work out. So he's now coming coming to this to this prostitute, and he's trying to recreate a little of that, not recreate or have a little of that human touch, literally. And those t- that line that the infamous line paints a blunt picture or a very or a very bleak picture against the beautiful relationship part of the song that it is entirely a business transaction yeah i think there's truth in art and here he's just giving that truth about this one interaction i certainly don't have a problem with it and i don't think anyone should have their sensibilities offended i mean i can see as he closes his eyes and looks out the window i mean i can see the way the camera pans from his face out the window into the desert outside. And then, then the, the scene fades up with him and Maria working in the fields. Yeah. You know, and also I, the thing about this song that I think that strikes people is that final line. I mean, because in, in a way you could read it as almost being nasty, but of course it's not being nasty, not nasty at all, you know, because again, in very cinematic fashion, he's recounting the scene that took place the the prostitute brings the guy uh, another whiskey and says, here's to the best you ever had. And he says that they laughed and then they made a toast. 
But now he's reminiscing it wasn't the best he ever had, not even close. And that is really referencing back to Maria, not a shot at the prostitute. Right. That was he was in that line. He references the fact that he had this real love that just just could they couldn't make it to work no matter how much they had and how much they really had it together. It just wouldn't work out. And so going going to the pro and just getting a little bit of that human touch was just just a facsimile of the real thing. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about this, of course, when we do the Devils and Dust tour. But this really, I thought, was was brilliantly done every night. And it was one of those songs that was played every night of the tour. Yes, it was. It was. There were times when it wasn't a highlight for me, but in the 15 years since, it certainly has become one of my favorite songs on this album. Yeah, and I think we've established it's one of mine as well. Right. Well, of course, thinking of speaking of favorite songs off the yes. album, long time coming. <laughs> this is probably this is probably my favorite song on the record. It, you know, it really endures well. It really has, and it's been it was beautiful on that tour. The way he slowed it down. And certainly the way he did on the on the Seeger on the Seeger sessions tour with with the horns coming in, it's this one has gotten just better with age. Yeah, and he played this in Brisbane when I was in Australia uh, in 2017, and the the version he did that night on February 16th was truly tremendous. Yeah, it's uh, it was one of the highlights even for me going back to the Joe tour when 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 he first debuted it, and it just. It's it's one of these. It's a happy song. It's one of the few happy songs uh, on this run. Well, not on this record, but certainly in his catalog. About he's gonna, you know, he ain't gonna screw, he ain't gonna fuck it up this time. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna learn from his father, and he's gonna make sure that he doesn't pass his own sins on to his sons. And I think we should point out just the the history of the song. It was debuted on October sixteenth, nineteen ninety six, on the Joe tour. Do you, it was this was written after Jode was complete? Do you know that? Well, going from the from the Hyatt book, it was it was part of those daytime sessions. Oh, okay. That, that, that he talked about uh, this one and all the way home. So I thought it was pretty much concurrent with with the other songs. I don't know. Of course, it's a good question as to why it took him so long to to bust it out on the tour. But uh, maybe you know, the, certainly those early shows were very dark. He wanted to keep it really focused. And it really wasn't until the fall of 96 where actually, I guess it was the spring of 96 when he started to loosen back up. Yeah, it loosened up a little earlier, but by the fall, he really he he really started to get looser in the middle of that. Well, the main set, we'll call it. Yes. And then certainly had fun with the encores and there will never be any other for me but you and and that such. But but long time coming is miles ahead of sell it and they will come and and uh, never be never be anyone for me but you. Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, those <laughs> songs are really throwaways. This is a big time keeper. And I guess so was uh, so you're saying, uh, which we also discussed a little earlier, it was done during the daytime sessions in 95. Then was it re-recorded in 97 uh, around that time for what we've been calling Joe 2? That I don't know. I really don't know. Um, okay. It was. I, yeah. Don't know. Don't know is my answer. <laughs> so, OK, but they have some tracks either from 95 or 97 that are then brought in and additional recording is done in 2004 with Brendan O'Brien. Yes. And this is one of them. I think actually the official release actually does, in, in fact, is credited as being produced by Plotkin as well as, as Bruce, of course, by Toby Scott and Chuck Plotkin. So it definitely dates back to 95, 97. And then they added in the, the drums and the bass, uh, Steve Jordan and then Brendan O'Brien, respectively, uh, in 2004. 
Now, what I like about this song is how it, it, the narrator saying that he knows he sinned and he doesn't want his children to pay for those sins, but he wants them to make their own and learn their own way in life. And, and I think that's a very powerful message. Well, obviously, we go back to fittingly, Adam raised the cane. You're born into this life paying for the sins of someone else's past. And that's what Bruce felt that I guess he paid for his father's sins. And but he doesn't want his own children to pay for those sins. Yeah. Whatever the whatever those sins are. <laughs> the other thing that strikes me about this song, especially as we're talking about it now, what do you make of the placement after Reno? We know these things don't happen accidentally. So we're going from the song of lost love do we think that there is some linkage and perhaps that that character has gone on to find happiness? Uh, what, what's your read on that? Yeah, the uh, the contradiction there, the juxtaposition of those two songs has always kind of been a, a mystery to me. So I don't know. Uh, the only what I was just thinking was, as you were saying, that is on the joke on the Devils and Dust tour, rather, he has mentioned about he did say he wrote songs of hope and songs of eternal damnation. So. This was, if Reno was a song of eternal damnation, this was a song of hope. Is it a song of eternal damnation? I, I, I can't really read it that way. No, I mean, you know, I mean, going from a soul who was certainly lost and go, going to a soul that's certainly looking looking bright to the future with, with his family, I think that's it's definitely a, a going in different directions. I mean, I think there are some people out there who perhaps would suggest that the acts depicted in Reno could lead to eternal damnation, but certainly we don't think that even with Bruce's background in Catholicism, he's certainly not uh, suggesting that. No, he's not. I, maybe eternal damnation is, is too harsh. Maybe we'll save that one for the hitter, but um, it's certainly someone who was, who was lost in, in, de- in the long time coming narrator is definitely found. The track after long time coming is Black Cowboys. Now, for me, this is one... I think it's very well intentioned, and I know that Hyatt cites that it was inspired by Alan Kozel's book about children in poor neighborhoods, and it does tell a compelling tale, but for me, the song really never achieves lift. What do you feel? Um, I feel the same. I feel similar. As I've said before, Bruce is often, his best stuff is when he, he takes like the specific and makes it general. You know, Badlands, Promised Land, even uh, the Ghost of Tom Joe, the song, those work well because they're somewhat universal. But then you have a song like the the, the three of the border songs on on the Joe album, um, Balboa Park, The Line, and Sinaloa Cowboys, where they're just too specific to really to resonate with people beyond that situation. And and to me, that's where Black Cowboys comes in. Oh, I see what you're saying. And I don't know, is there a hint here? Obviously, they're different names. So the character here is named Rainey. In the second verse of American Skin, the character is named Charles. So they're totally different characters. But I do, obviously, thematically, they're touching on some of the same things. Rainey here is seeing the names and photos of young black faces who've been, who've been killed or injured on the street. He's looking for escape. I, I think his mother would ha- tell him the same rules that Lena tells Charles in American Skin. But I, I think the distinction for me is, whereas American Skin really is powerful both as a piece of music and as social commentary, I don't think this one works on quite the same level. And I, I just don't find it to be that exciting a song musically. No, I, it's, and it's not. 
um, the most interesting thing about the song, even lyrically, is the 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 Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. That's where, like that came out of nowhere, and I want to I want to like this song more, but it just doesn't doesn't grab me like uh, as you were saying, like American Skin does. Let's move on to Maria's Bed. Now, here's a song, and we'll sort of start in reverse here. Although <laughs> maybe we should have saved that for Madame Morris Banks. <laughs> <laughs> but starting in reverse with Maria's bed, this has never been played with the East Street Band, right? I was trying to remember it this morning. It, it has not been. It has not. It was played with the Seeger Sessions Band a few times. Uh, I got to see it in Philadelphia. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's begging for an East Street arrangement. Come yes, on, it is. come on. <laughs> I, I think this... he, he even mentioned that at one point. He did it on at a, one of the, one of those pre-show acoustic sets. I believe it was somewhere in Ireland or or Europe anyway, in 2013. And he said, oh, I got to get a band arrangement of that. And, you know, that was six, six, that was eight years ago, seven years ago now. So, so it hasn't showed up, but yeah, when always I just think of how effective long time coming was in Brisbane, they would just kill on Maria's bed. It was just a thought before we get to the actual song. And this is a song that I really like. And I, as I think would be indicated by the fact that we're both hoping that it would be played more often, but, uh, uh, what do you think of this song? Oh, I really like it. Uh, it's it's one of the songs of hope, and I prefer the songs of hope. So that's why this one's on my on my favorite or favorites list, at least from this album. Yeah, one of the themes in here, the light shining as salvation as he's in Maria's bed. To me, uh, you know, we've talked about the light shining down before. Of course, it's in spare parts right before the woman is going to go through with this horrible act, and here again, you know, light shining down. It is hopeful and it is a sense of salvation that at what he's finding in Maria's bed. And I really like that. Uh, you know, and also another thing about the song, which, of course, I think most people know, it shares exact lines with further on up the road. Right. So kind of make, makes you wonder. I mean, we assume that this one came first and he, then he he used some of those lines in further a couple of years later. So and you you said this is one of the songs that was also played in the daytime sessions, correct? Uh, that one I don't know. Oh, uh, you, we we would we would think it to be, but it certainly uh, seems like it would fit, right? But I don't know if it was from the '95 daytime sessions or whether whether it was written later on, '96 or '97. So I don't know. The interesting thing about the whole daytime sessions, as it's been described by Hyatt, and that's basically the bulk of what we know about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, uh, the the idea that it was country western swing, is that how we would describe the arrangements, both of like Maria's Bed Here and Long Time Coming? I mean, it's certainly got a modern country sound to it. How would you classify this? That's a good question. Uh, and, the, and Brian Hyatt kind of classified All the Way Home as sounding out like outlaw country. Um, and Maria's Bed, it certainly doesn't have that that edge to it. No. But it certainly is more, obviously more of a full band kind of thing. So I don't, I don't know if I would call it swing or just, um, you know, just something more, more band oriented. Now that you mentioned both of them in the same sequence, uh, Maria's Bed and All the Way Home, it does strike me somewhat thematically the idea that looking for salvation and uh, human connection in someone's bed but here obviously it is much more hopeful than just the random encounter the person is tr seemingly trying to have in all the way home oh exactly this is the this is the real deal in in maria's bed and that obviously outshines the the false force connection of of reno 
Yeah, Marie's Bed is a very powerful place. There's roses, there's sweet salvation, <laughs> there's a light shining down. Oh, that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a bedroom, man. I cool, got, cl- I, cool, clear I, waters. I mean, th- this is the woman I think a lot of men want to know. <laughs> well, I, but, don't, I don't know. I, I want to know her interior decorator and get her to do that to our bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, no, but in all seriousness, I mean, that's... And he's evoking a very powerful image in this song because it, the character... I think is maybe a little troubled. And he even says that at the start, I mean, he's been on a barbed wire highway 40 days and nights, which doesn't sound like fun, you know, and yet at the end of the day, he gets to come home to this woman that he loves and he gets to feel whole again. That's definitely what we want to hear. We want to go, we want to go out into the world and then come back as we know we have a, a wonderful woman waiting for us at home. Yep. And that's what makes it a powerful song. And again, he should play it more often. <laughs> Yeah, and, and get that E Street arrangement going, Bruce. So next up is Silver Palomino. Now, I, I got to admit, and obviously you already know this, you know, I want to love this song <laughs> uh, you know, because, you know, my, my mom also died when I was younger, not as young as the children in the song, but it it doesn't fully work for me. And it was the case in 2005 when I first heard it and the few times I saw him play it on the tour. There's just something about it. It is, it's, I don't know, is it very, because it's so wordy? I mean, it, the song ends, there are lines in here about how I can smell your hair, I can, the scent of your skin, mother fills the air. And I can connect to that emotionally in certain ways, but just for some reason, this song never really grabbed me. What do you think? I, I can understand that. It doesn't, I mean, I, I certainly don't have that kind of emotional attachment or connection to the to the situation, but it never, I, it always left me a little bit cold. I think the, I feel like the introduction that he gave on the on that tour was actually more, tugged at more, more heartstrings in the song itself. Yes, that was very moving. He would speak about Fiona Chapel, who was the friend of his who passed away, unfortunately, leaving two young children behind. And, you know, again, I, I and I don't even know really what to say about this song. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to knock it. And again, as I say, I, I want to feel an emotional connection to it, but that's what art is. Sometimes it works for you and, and sometimes it doesn't. This is just not a track that particularly grabs me. No, nah, and me neither. And, and I just, I mean, to me, this is one of the most boring songs actually in his catalog. <laughs> to <laughs> okay, go ahead well, and put, uh, just to go ahead and, you know, be right after I said, it. I didn't want to knock it. Uh, you don't want to knock it. I'm like, yeah. I, look, I see what you're saying. I mean, I, it's again, it's not a song that I particularly like, even though I really want to. I feel the same way about Black Cowboy, so I want to like it more than I do, but it is it is what it is, as they say. From there, we move on to another song about a relationship between a boy and his mother, but this is a <laughs> bit more universal, I think. It, well, it, it, maybe universal is not the word, but this is a very, very well-known uh, mother-son relationship. Of course, I am talking about Jesus and Mary. And he was an only son. <laughs> yes. Um, I think this is a very lovely song, to use one of Bruce's favorite words. It's it's beautiful the way he paints the picture of of the relationship of of, of humanizing the Jesus and Mary mother son relationship. It's funny because I have less of an emotional connection to Jesus was an only son because 
I, I uh, don't practice Catholicism and I don't have Bruce's upbringing, you know, where I, uh, I would have gone to someplace like St. Rose of Lima. But here as an artist, he really does connect you to it. And you really do feel the emotion of the song. Right. And I think that when he played it on tour, when he when he was introducing it and he was talking between the verses, which we can, we'll talk about when we talk about the tour, um, he was really setting it up as the choices we make or about the sacrifices that or the things that we have to give up. And that was what and that's what makes this song. I take those words from Bruce and I listen. I hear him when I listen to the song in, in and of itself now. And it's and it hits it hits hard. It does. I mean, at the end, you know, uh, when Jesus kisses his mother's hands in the song, you know, whether you're a believer or not, that I think he really does make that a universal moment there. Yes, he takes something that um, I guess Jesus and Mary are pretty are pretty darn universal in, in a lot of ways. But yeah, he takes that and he, he humanizes it, that relationship in a in, in a beautiful way. He really does. And it, on every level, it's a it's a special song. And moving on from Jesus Was an Only Son, we go on to Leah, which to me is one of the most hopeful songs Bruce has ever written. And as I said, those are the ones that I like the most. It starts off right at the beginning with the first line is, I want to build me a house, which of course then connects to Bruce actually using the we're going to build a house motif on multiple tours. I think that started on the Magic Tour, right? Yes. Yes, it did. And um, that was during Mary's place, of course, Mary's place. And then I think that he built a house during working on it during the actual song, working on a dream. In oh, yeah. He, he may have used that again as well. We're yeah. going to build a house of yeah. love and that of something else and the good wood and the bad wood. And that's right. And then and then sooner or later, you got a whole freaking development. So, you know, lots of houses going on here. Well, what I like about this song is the character clearly wants a better life and you know, it's it's expressed explicitly to leave the shadow and doubt behind. And and the character also feels like he's got something to give someone. I think that's a powerful image and in some ways different from some of Bruce's other characters. In this one, the song, the line that really stands out to me is the one about with this hand I build and with and with this hand I burn. Right. Acknowledging that he has the that each one of us has the power to create something or destroy something. Yes. And the our inner constant inner conflict is between those two urges and, and it's really laid out bare in this one yeah in a way it connects back to two faces in the sense that the character there is allowing that second face to get the the hold of him and it's he's doing things that he doesn't want to be doing here i think the character is recognizing he could go either way while walking that road and he really wants the best of himself to come out is that is that what you would think that's exactly what i hear Yes, okay. you could say it's a guy from Two Faces, as you said, but this time he's he's working hard to make the first face win. And and that's why the song is hopeful. I, I think it's a song of transformation, and the character at the end, you know, he opens the door and he climbs the stairs, which is both in a literal sense he's 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 going to the find the woman that he loves and in a metaphorical sense i mean opening the door and climbing the stairs is obviously i think an allusion to heaven would you agree with that um i don't know about heaven but certainly opening the door to fully embracing the hopefulness and embracing the building part of, of his character and not and not succumbing to the to the dark parts 
Okay. Yeah. I, well, uh, light. I should have. Maybe instead of saying heaven, I should have said it's a, it's it's more an ascent into the light. Okay, I can go with that. And everything we just said makes the transition to the next song, which is the hitter, really interesting because there's not a lot of hope and there's not a lot of transformation in this song, and the character's pretty damn beaten down. <laughs> yeah, you could actually say it's the exact opposite of uh of leah i mean this is everything bad you know this guy he was a boxer and then he 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 took a rig took a fixed fight and and then spends his days one wandering around the i guess the country uh in bare knuckle bare knuckle fights for for anything he can do anything he can get and it's just such a stark and sad song in a way it does refer back to some of the earlier tracks you know if you think even about silver palomino because here's a character who's at the door of his mother's home. And all he wants to Mm -hmm. do is be able to say hello to his mother and lie down in his bed and find some rest. And and she's not letting him in. It's actually, it's really quite devastating. Yes, it is. It's, I mean, this guy has, he knows he screwed up and that everything he did. I mean, I I guess he made some money in, in his heyday, but then the way he exited that life was not, was not the best. And yeah, this is a, this is a, song of eternal damnation (laughs) (laughs) yes this one is yeah and it's uh you know this one goes back to was it the fall of 96 it was played one time i forget exactly where syracuse Syracuse? okay november 13th right i knew it was somewhere upstate and it was kind of this was kind of a um a legendary song i guess the rarity factor of it made it you know so cool but Got to say, when he did it every night on the tour, it lost a little uh, little luster for me. Oh, really? I, I always found it very powerful. I mean, this is a, a very powerful song. It's, it's, it's really quite a tale. And I like it. And uh, I liked hearing it on the tour. And when I listened to it the other night, which was the first time I had heard it in a while, it really, it, it, it surprised me a little in the sense the way it impacted me. I mean, it is just... It's one of the songs in Bruce's catalog that just as it ends, it really does sort of leave a bleak closing image. And I can I, I can get that. I can get that. And I was reading the Hyatt the Hyatt book again to prepare, and you're talking about they have there's some strings and horns in there. Yeah. And they're and they're but they're really low. So they just add kind of a bit of a haunting atmosphere, haunting right. ambiance. And, and and it was funny in the book he, he was uh, Hyatt was quoting Brendan O'Brien as saying, "We paid big money for these things. Let's pump up, pump them up." But you know, it, just because you spent money on them doesn't mean you have yeah. to put them in people's face. Well, I think that was the right call to leave them understated. Oh, absolutely. It, it, and I think that really adds to the to the devastating effect that you uh, you were just talking about. The next track is all I'm thinking about. Now, this is one of those songs. I, I honestly, I don't know what to make of this song. <laughs> I mean, I don't dislike it. It's kind of like a fun ditty. Uh, it, it feels a bit whimsical to me, but like I was listening to it the, the other night what, preparing for this and I was just like, I really don't have much to say about this song. I mean, it, it's obviously a rare falsetto. In fact, I think the only other falsetto he's done on record is Lift Me Up, which I, is a far superior song in my opinion. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's your uh, well, take on this one? Well, the falsetto does not work for me. Okay. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm not, the less he uses that voice, the better for me. I think it works in Lift Me Up because it's such a atmospheric kind of song. But this one, it's more of a, got that kind of a country feel to it. And I, I just don't think it fits. I would like to have 
like to hear a version where he uses his his normal singing voice instead of this one. And what do we make of the lyrical content of the song? Now, this may be a reach, but it seems like the guy is thinking about a girl. <laughs> well, that would describe about, you know, three quarters of the songs in Bruce's catalog. Well, this but... one is much more explicit because he says, all I'm thinking about is you. I, should we count it up at least? It, does he say it as many times as he says Backstreets and Backstreets? Although, of course, Backstreets is a far superior song. I, I don't know. Perhaps I don't know. Best song. I haven't counted. I think there's like must be four or five times per chorus. So I probably only gives us about 15 or 20. And I think they're about close to 30 hiding on the back streets in that song. That's five times in each chorus. All I'm thinking about is you. All right. And that's there are what three or four of them. So that still leaves you a lot less than what we have on back streets. Well, now we're going to get hate mail, and I just want to make it very, very, very clear to everyone. We are not in any way comparing this song to Backstreet's. Well, and to me, lyrically, I just hear a lot of a lot of images that from a Carolina summer. And I spent some time in North and South Carolinas when I was a, when I was a kid. So this reminds me of a lot of those kind of vacations. Yeah, I never really took any vacations in that area of the country. And perhaps <laughs> maybe that's why I'm not really gravitating to the song. But whatever. You can't love every song. No, you can't. No, you can't. What do you think of this following the hitter? I, it, it just seems kind of disjointed to me. I mean, the hitter is such a powerful song that ends on, as I was saying, a, a pretty bleak note. And I, I, I'm not sure what to make of this. I mean, we know that Bruce sequences these records extremely carefully. What's your theory on that? Well, as, as we said earlier, there's some hodgepodgeness going on in, in this on this album in, yeah. in its entirety. So this is another another example of you going from the desperation of the hitters to to this kind of I don't know whether you you want to call it an, uh, a joyful kind of love song or whatever you want to call it. Well, but well it's, I called it whimsical. I don't know. Whimsical. Maybe. Okay. All right. I, I get that. So yeah, there's no doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason there. But then again, as I'm looking at the track listing, if you if you flipped the hitter and all I'm thinking about. So then you have Leah, all I'm thinking about, the hitter, and Manamore Spanks. That really ends the album on such a such a dour note. I remember this, and we talked about this in the Tunnel of Love shows, that at one point in the initial conception for the Tunnel of Love set, he was going to throw in Darlington County into the first set because of the fact he felt the, the show was very stark and dark. Maybe that just explains, as you were just saying, what all I'm thinking about is doing here between the hitter and Manamore Spanks. I can see that. You know, we don't know. I mean, I would, like I said, I would love to hear a normal, hear this song sung in his normal voice, but uh, I don't know if we're ever going to hear that. Well, <laughs> I don't want to be, I, I don't, I don't want to be overly dramatic about it. But as far as I'm concerned, I could not. It's fine if I don't hear the song again in the falsetto <laughs> or in his normal voice. This is not one of the ones that I'll be calling for him to play more often. No, I think uh, it's out of the more band-oriented songs on this album. This is my least favorite. <laughs> As we were saying, I mean, and, and you just said it again, that we feel this album is a little uneven, you know, and, and I guess perhaps that is ties back to the idea that these really were outtakes. Yes, they were being presented as new material, but but they were songs pulled out of the vault and and then released later on. So I, maybe that explains it. We know he's got a lot of great songs floating around. Right. And, then, and as, as you were saying earlier, 
he wanted to do something different at this point, and this was this was probably the the best way to get back to that, this this collection of songs. And and you know the tour was was phenomenal, as as I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss in the future. Yeah, well, and we always know. I mean, a, a lot of times, even though his albums are extremely important, an album like this does in in many ways have a purpose of also helping to set up the tour. And you are right; he went on a tour that was it was just brilliant, uh, just tremendous artistry. So look back quite fondly on that on that year. Yeah, and that's why the archive we got over the weekend is uh, is a good one. Yes, it is perfect quality and and, and a great set list. So, but let's let's move on to Madame Morris Banks. Yeah, now this is a tr- a track that really, in my opinion, works well. As we know, it's a sort of sequel to Across the Border, another beautiful song that was on Jode, and here he's telling a story that again is is very dark but it's told in reverse yes it's when you say it's a kind of a sequel to across the border you got to think of the the, that joe's song was about the guy dreaming of what was going to happen when he made it across the river when he made it to the to the promised land in some in some fashion and this is the the version of that story when he doesn't make it and he ends up drowned in the river Yeah, that's why this song is pretty dark, because it goes back to that original track. And now, if it in fact is the same character, the character dreamed of getting across. And unfortunately, we know the character's dead. And and this song still has a lot of relevance for present day. I I think we we talked about this a few episodes back. They released a version of this from the 2005 tour with a statement from Bruce on 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 immigration recently. It's a very, very powerful track, both as a piece of music and in that regard, uh, talking about what happens to these people who are trying to get across the border. This is one where it's kind of it's somewhat specific to to, to that situation. But at the same time, it can be universal about, you know, we're just falling short of, of reaching our goals or trying to make a better life and just not quite getting there. But and then thinking of the love that we, we left behind to, to try to do it. it. This The imagery in the song, I mean, especially as we get to the end of the song, which is the beginning of the story, when the character is dreaming of his girl and, and, and the right. lights of Brownsville are across the river where he's just desperate and dying to go. Literally, he dies <laughs> trying to get there. And he dives into the river. You know, the last thing he thinks is of the touch of his girl's fingertips and then unfortunately he doesn't make it. Yes. And then of course the line that seemed to attract the attention of a lot of people was the line about the, you know, the turtles eat the skins from your eye. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty, that's pretty blunt there. kind of not too, not too different than, than the infamous line in Reno. Uh, just not as, you know, provocative. It was just, I mean, when you drown in the river, the animals and the, and the, and nature just, it, it has its way with your body. Well, to me, what it it struck me as meaning is that basically he's saying for these people, every trace of them are really erased during this process. You know, some of them do get across the border successfully, but the ones that don't make it, they are the the turtles and everything else, just all part of everything that makes them disappear. Yeah. Well, as you said that, I was thinking back. I was thinking back to the. Um, the plane wreck at Los Gatos yeah. song that Bruce did in, in 81. And I think he did it again a few times on, on the Joe tour. You know, they're just names, but 
you know, they were, they were really people. They were, they were human beings who had friends and family and, and those friends and family are going to miss them. Again, I think that's why he used the song to release it in the manner that he did a few months ago in regards to the immigration debate. And I think Bruce has been quite vocal about what he feels the changes need to be made. And he certainly depicts it in this song. And as powerful as it is, I do think it's really quite a good song as well. It is. It's quite beautiful. And it was a great way for, for him to end the to end the main set on that tour. Somewhat similar to how we use Across the Border on, on the Joe tour. Now, before we wrap up, I do have a question. I think I saw it on Bruce Base in one of the sources. It said that Little Things Account was potentially going to be included on Devils and Dust. Do you know anything about that? I know nothing more than what's on Bruce Base. Okay. And I, I, thought, I think it would have been a really, really interesting inclusion. Um, apparently, the reason they didn't, he didn't want to re- include it was it would have been a 13th song, and that's, I guess, bad luck. But then again, Is Western that Stars, that's what it said on Bruce Base. Oh, I, did, that, he, that he, sounds he crazy. Want, well, you know, some artists are crazy sometimes. Well, you well know I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, I think the album would have been stronger if he had dropped all I'm thinking and put on the little things that count. Okay, I can definitely see that. And I and then I would love to hear what little things, you know, in some kind of country or swing arrangement or even more of an acoustic arrangement would sound like uh, as opposed to the pretty, pretty desolate version from the Joe tour. Yeah. So I was just curious. I, I didn't know if you knew anything more about that, but I figured I'd ask. Yeah, that's okay. You know, again, we can always just hope for tracks too. <laughs> yes, we can. And I guess that brings the show to a close. Now we can tell people that our next topic is going to be, an, I think, an exciting one. I think so. The end of the month is going to be uh, June 29th, uh, which is the day we're aiming to release our next episode, episode 18. And June 29th, 1984, of course, was the day the, Born in the USA tour started, and we're going to be taking a look at that tour beginning in episode 18. We'll probably break it up where we do 1984 as one year, uh, episode and 1985 is another episode. Still working that out, but uh, the next episode will cover the Born in the USA tour. Yes, and that's going to be interesting. I didn't see any shows on that tour, but uh, I've certainly listened to a lot of them. So, uh, and, But then, of course, Hal, you saw what, four, five, eight? Five, and, five, and I can honestly say that... Uh, Life changing, uh, <laughs> for sure. One of those nights, the first night that I ever saw in 1984 was, uh, I'll look forward to talking about that. Uh, sounds good. Looking forward to it. So let's wrap up with our usual bit of business. None but the brave is a presentation of bull market entertainment. Please subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform of your choice. We can be found on Twitter at NBTB Podcast and on our website at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks again for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.